Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Before I introduce the panel, I just thought I'd say something about insulation. Uh, I will say that it's quite an exciting time to be talking about insulation, um, because last September, uh, 92 people camped out on the motorways to stop the traffic, put up their protest signs, and they weren't calling for a, a fall of government. Uh, they were just calling homes in the UK uh, which have the, you know, they have the worst energy efficiency of any homes in Europe. All the homes to be retrofitted by 2030. Um, so one of those 92 people is due to be with us today, Cameron. He sadly couldn't make it um, because he's planning more activism and also he's seeing his partner ahead of all of his many court cases for civil disobedience. Um, but in, in a message he sent earlier to me, he welcomed the Chancellor's announcement last week that VAT will be dropped on insulation. He said that's progress. But he said we still need a national retrofit program. Um, and you know, the argument for that is about the climate, but it's also about lifting people out of food poverty and making sure, especially with rising gas prices, that uh, everyone can afford to be warm in winter. So anyway, I think there's a growing consensus about the need for energy efficiency measures and better insulation, both in new buildings uh, and in existing buildings, and particularly homes. But there's still lots of questions. What is the role of designers in a retrofit program, if we ever get one? Should we be insulating from the inside of buildings or from the outside? What should we be insulating with? especially when embodied carbon is also a concern and uh, when insulation manufacturers have fraudulently, I would argue, missold flammable insulation. So with me to answer, hopefully, these questions and some more is Kunle Barker, property expert, writer and broadcaster. Uh, got Tanvir Hassan, uh, deputy chairman of Donald Insel Associates. We have the founding director of Material Cultures on the end, Summer Islam. And we've got the director of NINTIM Architects, Tim O'Callaghan. Uh, I thought I'd start with you, Tim, and ask. Yeah, do you want one of these? Oh, have you got our own? Yeah, I've got loads, yeah. <laughs> um, turned it on, yeah. Is that working? Yeah. Yeah, well done. All right, your question is, how and where do you start with 
when you go about insulating uh, when you're designing homes? Yeah, well, I guess I was kind of wondering before what my angle would be and what I'd say <clears throat> as an architect practicing. And I guess um, it's just that it's really complicated and it's really hard to know where to start when you're specifying insulation. Um, but, you know, uh, I guess especially um, architects my age who graduated nearly 20 years ago, uh, you learn a bit about U-values at university. You might have learned a bit about kind of condensation points and dew points. But it turns out it's a lot more complicated. And I've made some notes because I'll never remember all this stuff. But it turns out that these other factors are just as, can be just as important. Um, thermal conductivity, thermal resistance, specific heat capacity, density, thermal diffusivity, vapor permeability. Um, that's in terms of like the, the kind of performance of the insulation. But then you've kind of also got to start to consider things like embodied carbon within the insulation as well as what it kind of gives you through the lifetime of the building. Um, it's lifetime carbon. It's kind of lifespan and it's resistant to rot. We were talking about natural materials, but and some of those have issues with kind of rot and kind of um, uh, you know infestation, and then they have to be treated. Um, re recyclability and reuse. Um, what happens at the end of the building's lifespan? Um, what happens when it burns? You know, one of the, I think, uh, I guess, 9-11 uh, and also Grenfell, you know, there's a huge issue with the pollutants that came about as, when those buildings burned. Not all of it was insulation, but a lot of it was down to the insulation. Um, and what happens when it's handled and used um, by the people making it and um, <clears throat> even if they're, like, you know, sawing it on site. Like, you know, what happens to all the dust and stuff that, that happens there? And then I guess Grenfell throws an extra factor into it, and it's who's making it. And I wrote another list because I wouldn't remember all of this. And here just a kind of few of the alleged actions of some of the insulation companies that supplied the Grenfell Tower. And these are just ones I picked up when I Googled it before, um, before tonight. Um, they kept internal fire tests secret. They lobbied NHBC and other organizations to endorse materials they were aware would not pass fire tests. They rigged fire tests and then failed to mention this when questioned at the first stage of the inquiry. They threatened legal action against partner companies if they made failed test fire tests public. They sold a ver different version of the product than the one that had been tested. Uh, they tried and succeeded to change a, a, a certificate that uh, building control officers relied on to approve a product. Um, they marketed the product in a completely unethical way, according to a former employee. Uh, sorry, I'm nearly finished on this list. Um, after the fire, they lobbied politicians whilst the building was still smouldering um, to avoid a ban on combustible materials on tall buildings. Um, and it's also possible to read about some of the environmental breaches that are alleged by, to have, have happened by whistleblowers at their manufacturing plants. So these are some of the alleged, um, they're quite litigious, so I'll just say alleged a few more times, um, <laughs> things that they've done. So that adds another kind of, um, I guess, uh, ethical dimension to the choice. So I guess my opening gambit is that it's just really confusing um, and it's quite hard to know where to start. All right. What do you do then, Kamei? You've... Um you, you've, uh, Every day. Uh, Hello? Oh, yeah. What? You, you've, you've apparently worked on over a thousand kind of housing refurbishment projects. So, where do you start with 
insulation in terms of what you put in? And, and also, how has that changed over time? Um, well, yeah, I mean, that was quite a long time ago. We, we, we did work like that. You know, I, I come from a... Con I'm not an architect. I come from a contracting background. So uh, we put the insulation in that the architects told us to and uh, to the specification they, they told us to. But I think, in, in general, what my view on insulation is, is that if there was ever a silver bullet to these issues that we have at the moment, if ever there was a silver bullet to the climate crisis and, and, and fuel price inflation, then insulation is it. Um, and, and, and quite simply, we need to insulate more houses, more homes, more schools, more sports centres, um, because we need to shift from a consumption-based philosophy when it comes to energy to a con conservation or to conserve energy. We don't, we don't, we don't do that at the moment. We, it's all about where does our energy come from, how, how, how cheap can we get it? But it should be about how do we use as, as little energy as, as possible. It's the only way that the, the country will reach the targets that we need to. It's the only way that we will help the world reach the targets that we need to. And without doing that, it doesn't matter how many air source heat pumps, as you all know, it doesn't matter how many air source heat pumps we put in or solar arrays we fit. We just will not meet any of these targets because energy backslash carbon will be leaking out of all of our buildings into the atmosphere. And um, so without insulation, we, we, um, we will fail. Who, who should be doing more of it? Where do you point the finger at? So who should be insulating more? So, well, look, so um, there are new build houses being built today which have got EPCs of C and less probably, you know, so that needs to stop already. So the government should be saying that all new build houses should be, uh, if not passive, certainly as close to, uh, as passive as economically viable for the developer. And I come from, I say that, as one of the businesses that I help run as a development company, but... That's what should be happening. Um, the big problem, of course, is we can't build our way to net zero. Um, it's the 27 or 26 million existing um, buildings that will still be around, you know, 80, 90% of them will still be around in 50 years' time. Those are the ones that we have to figure out. So the, the real challenge, in my view, for architects is to figure out how can we retrofit buildings um, cheaply, and when I say cheaply, I just mean in a way that you know people can afford that isn't prohibitive, um, in a way that works with the structure of that building, which um, is sympathetic to um, listed buildings and period properties, but still works and gets them to that kind of um, point where we're not using as much energy as we are at the moment. Okay, good time to bring in Tanvir. You're a conservation architect. What's your approach to insulation? Oh, um, well, thank you, Will. Um, I think insulation is, is very important, uh, but I think, uh, as has been mentioned, we need to look at that in moderation or in context, because it's a question of uh, losing heritage because we are sort of so focused on in insulation, and I think the measure has to be a carefully moderated one. Old buildings have been around for a very long time, and embedded energy is an important factor. And as I was having a conversation before, you know, you could have Edwardian windows that were built out of um, slow-grown pine that took 100 years to be 
uh, to reach its maturity, and these windows have survived for over 150 years. But in the kind of, in our uh, haste to make them uh, triple glaze, we will bin them, and then you are throwing away really good energy. And I think it's looking at old buildings in a, in a more logical fashion. Uh, and understanding how they behave, because they do certainly behave. You can't just slap some insulation at the back of a sort of a, a, a thick brick building, because it will just collect damp. So you need to understand how building behave before you actually put insulation into it. And again, insulation materiality, as will be discussed later, is an important thing. We know the fabric uh, that we are working with when we look at listed buildings or at old buildings because it's been around, we know how it behaves. And we have contemporary new insulation. We don't even know what it's like. We don't know, we don't know what its survival is going to be, how it's going to age, how it's going to, uh, uh, whether it's going to survive or not, what is going to, whether it's going to burn, whether it's going to rot. And it's, it's these questions of moderation of understanding the material, understanding the behavior of a building that is key to, to, to well-insulating building, I think. That's answered your question. Summer, I wanted to ask you what we should be insulating with. Um, is it straw? Is it sheep's wool? Is it Polyiso, cyanide foam. Yeah. yeah. How far away is this? Okay. Uh, I don't know if there is one answer. Um, I think the thing is that we have to ask better questions. We've got used to being able to, to specify products that were sent to you in the post or that everyone had used before, and we didn't have to understand the implications of what it was to make that thing. Who made it? Where did the materials come from? What labor was used in its production? what were the consequences for the ecosystem of the place that it was made in. And every time we pick a cheap material, we are outsourcing those problems to some other place. Certainly not a place in which we build and work, you know, whether it's in this country or in another country. Um, so I guess you know, it's a kind of conservation question. It's like, what building are you working with? What are your values, really? What values do you want to perpetuate in the industry we work in? And yeah, it's really difficult because doing things well is really expensive, actually. And the best things that you can work with are things that grew and can compost at the end of their life and go back into the soil and they won't cause harm. So straw is really interesting. Wood fibre is really interesting. Sheep's wool, also interesting, but they're covering chemicals so it doesn't catch fire and doesn't have moss living in it. But like, it's, it's like a balance of evils, really, unfortunately. Um, yeah, we always start with this uh, material pyramid. It's like a tool online where you can go and see what the embodied carbon of your material is. And it's kind of limiting because it doesn't talk about where it came from, like where it was manufactured, where your project is in the world also matters, you know. We use lots of wood fibre in specifying and designing sustainable buildings. And wood fibre is really interesting as a product. And it's made from, I don't know, thinnings from trees and bark and all this sort of stuff. It gets chipped up and made into really good products. But... We don't make that in the UK because we don't have a good forestry industry here. We've never supported forestry. We've always supported farming. So that's important, and it travels a really long way to get here. And in the context of having left the European Union and uh, rising gas prices, also we have to decide 
whether or not our priorities are localism or embodied carbon sometimes, because sometimes those things are at odds with each other and you have to pick or understand the consequences of what you do when you do pick. And generally speaking, I think we don't. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Where should people start? If, you know, if I'm a young architect in London designing a kind of housing extension, are there any nice options for me to start with? Or do I just have to get whatever? There's loads of nice options. I think it's, I wouldn't still practice if I thought it was a terribly lost cause. There's great products out there, and there's great ways of working, and loads of interesting stuff. I think it's just thinking about a material palette that we weren't cultured and we were educated into thinking was contemporary. And actually, I, we work with uh, very old-fashioned materials a lot of the time. You know, Adobe is just clay, and it's also got thermal properties. Hempcrete is an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. uh, wood fiber, sheep's wool. There's loads of stuff out there. It's just you know what you can afford what risks you can take, what envelope you work with, um, and also what your clients will accept. You know, we don't have as much agency as we would like. Um, but every time you build a building, you have an opportunity to make a case for the next person down the road who makes a building, who can point to you and say, actually, they did that there, and it worked really well, and it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we have opportunities as well. Yeah, Tim, you know, as an architect, how educated are clients? Do people, are you able to kind of explain to people the value of paying more for good insulation, even if that means losing a bit of space? Uh, yeah, I guess space is an issue. Um, <clears throat> and one of the big challenges with the, retro, the retrofit of homes is if you're preserving a lot of the kind of um, facade heritage, then you're looking at an internal... And, I mean, I think we worked out on a nearby um, house, Victorian Terrace house, if you, if you insulated the front in, internally, you lose, like, a metre of space, which in the bit of London we're in, and probably most bits of London, is, like, £10,000. So you're asking a lot for clients to kind of accept that. Um, I don't know. I mean, with, the, with residential clients, domestic clients, at least the ones that we've been lucky to work with, they've generally been quite supportive of... Um, we've been talking about it for a while, like we kind of a while ago decided that we'd try and avoid um, specifying PIR insulation. Just because we were seeing it on site and it was like getting stuffed down inside cavity walls and it wasn't, and you could see it wasn't done properly and the builders were using a saw on site and all the dust was going everywhere, including into their own bodies. And then they were trying to sort of push fit it into between some joists and it just, you know, and you can see all the air gaps on it, and it just wasn't a good product. And so for a long time we've been saying we're not going to specify that. Now, obviously, a lot of clients will go on site <coughs> without us and say, and the builder will say, look, I can get this standard builder's merchant for half the price, and they'll say, and it's not as thick, and they'll be like, okay, fine. Um, but I guess, I mean, one of, one of our, probably our best-known project is the, the one that we did in, with Cork. Um, and... I mean, Cork's not going to solve all the problems of insulation, but it was a really good solution on that project because we could achieve the U-value. I didn't test all the other things that I talked about earlier, but um, we could achieve the U-value just with 100 mil of cork on one side of a solid block wall, 200 block wall, just glued bonded on, and then another 100 mil of cork on the other side. So it was really simple and also kind of similar to how the existing house was, albeit uninsulated. Um, and you could expose it as well, which was really... Well, we had to have a kind of really 
uh, helpful building control officer because um, it's not very good for, for fire. <coughs> but um, yeah, so we've de we've tended to find our like we, I mean we're lucky. I think maybe not all clients would be like that, and certainly commercially minded clients might be different. But we've been quite lucky in that they've gone on board with anything you know that dialogue of a sort of thoughtful specification, even if it meant more money, slightly less space for them. Kunle, um, to what extent is it up to architects to specify the right insulation? Can, can builders have a say in terms of finding old materials? Um, they can, but they're not trained to do that. So it is best that it is the architect you know, who specifies the material. What, you know, what the, what the, I think the trick is, especially with, with, with retrofit, with the residential market, is, you know, there is a section of the residential market who are very switched on, very engaged, and they're worried about off-gassing, and they want natural materials, and that's fantastic. That's tiny. Um, the others will, the way that you'll get them to do it is by explaining the economics of it to them. And so in a strange way, the times that we are in now, that is, that is, that's probably, again, oddly, but it's the human condition, more compelling than the, the climate argument. But the economic one is, is probably more compelling. It's an easier argument to make. And that's the argument, I think, at the moment that we should be trying to make with people by explaining, yes, it's expensive, but this is what it's going to save you. And, you know, project forward 10, 20 years, and this is what it will save you over, over, over you know, in, in that, in that, period. Um, I know it's not probably the way that most people want to think about <laughs> how to specify materials, but, you know, for, in my opinion, in my experience with, with, with clients, especially residential ones, that's, that's the way to make that argument. Right. So in terms of retrofitting, the money for insulating and upgrading properties, you, you, in a way you don't have to find it because it is there. It's just a kind of future saving and it's about persuading people to invest. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, you, you can talk to them about it being more comfortable in their homes. Um, and then you can talk to them about different types of material that are, you know, a, a low VOC or, or, or there's no off-gassing, so they're healthier for them. Bringing that all together as a, almost, you know, as a, as a kind of a collage of arguments, I think, works, works really well. And I think that's the way, that's the, that's the role of the, of the architect, I think, is to, is to find or figure out a way to, in a sense of, you know, in a way, make that, make these arguments probably they're not used to because they're not really there to make economic arguments, but, but I think that's probably the way it has to happen. Hmm. Tanvir, I wanted to ask you, from the heritage perspective, to what extent you just have to accept sometimes heritage loss in order to get sustainability when you're adding in insulation or moving to double glazing, do you have to accept that to some extent, you're going to lose bits of old buildings and what was in order for, for another gain, which is sustainability. I think sustainability and insulation is very, very important in NA. The old buildings are no exceptions. However, I think not everything needs to be double glazed. I think you cannot measure old buildings with the same yardstick that you measure new buildings in. So you can't put secondary glazing. I think we all hate secondary glazing because nobody's actually designed a very good secondary glazing. All the secondary glazing are crap, you know, and, and nobody wants them. They're difficult to use. They make the windows unopenable. 
If somebody here were to come up with a really good design for a fabulous secondary glazing, and Dezine would put it out on their website as, you know, the <laughs> final solution, suddenly old buildings would become possible. And I think it's our perception of what is what is beautiful and what isn't, and we are so governed by other people's aesthetics. Mm. Um, and old buildings cannot be measured, as I said, with the same yardstick. There are some rooms which have paneling. You can put insulation behind paneling. You really need to know what you're doing. So we do this all the time, but we know. We know where dew points are. We know how to ventilate a piece of insulation. We put it in so you can take it out and change it when it's no longer of any use. That's how old buildings have survived. They've survived because you can dismantle them completely. You can dismantle all the panelings, you can reassemble it. You can dismantle all the brickwork, you can reassemble it. You can take all the stonework down, you can take the brickwork. New buildings don't do that. You know, you have a cladding, and I'd even forgotten the word for it. And what happens after the building gets old? You bin it. And you know, we have to square the circle. We, it's, you know, in our rush to talk about insulating, about zero carbon, there's no such thing as net zero. There is no building that does net zero. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. And embodied carbon and old stuff is as important. Um, recycling is important. Our ability not to waste material that comes out of our soil is important. You know, the, the two centimeters thick stone cladding in front of any new building is useless. You've just wasted all the stone that's taken centuries to build itself. And all because you can put a thick piece of insulation behind it and clamp it onto a steel column and, and there you have a net zero building. Well, you don't. You have, you've wasted energy. And my argument is that we can't look at insulation, we can't look at sustainability in isolation. We have to look at the whole life carbon of a building. We have to look at what energy is generated, how energy is generated to heat the building, how we inhabit the building. Do we all need to live at 24 degrees centigrade all the time in every single room? No. Do we need to seal our buildings to make it passive house and therefore have some sort of a heat circulation thing? No, we don't. We all like opening our windows. And I think it's a reality check. So insulation is absolutely crucial. But I think old buildings and heritage and culture and society is as important. If you lose everything, if you go and live in Dubai, which has invented an old sector, which has made it up because it was such a human need for old buildings. And here we have so many of them that we just you know, you have to respect them. Can I ask a question on that? I got some good points there, but how old is old? I think anything, I, I don't know. I mean, I think some of the 20th century, 20th century buildings are pretty, pretty important. 20th century, 1960s building. I think you're talking about what we keep and what we bin. Well, not quite. I'm kind of thinking more on the, the thing about retrofit, which has come up. Um, Reba recently published that um, retrofit thing about Beaconsfield in Barking. Thank you. <laughs> Hello? Yeah. I'll try not to be too loud. Um, that's 1930s on towards 1950s. 
the 30s and 50s housing stock in suburban London is something that a lot of, probably a lot of architects who have small practices have to deal with sometime in their career, whether it's extensions or it's working with them or it's working near them. Um, now, as a Glaswegian, I've seen that in Glasgow happening with um, estates in Drumchapel and Easter House, where um, you had poorly insulated what they called Wilson blocks from the 1950s, which were the opposite of the old buildings you just described. They were kind of the bad example of the modern buildings that you're kind of describing, but they're old. They're about 70 years old now. But it's existing housing stock. And one of the, the fascinating things that was done in the 80s, late 80s in Glasgow, was a, a new program funded by the EU, not Margaret Thatcher's government, not the British government. It was actually coming from EU funds, which is probably impossible now. But, and that was to train people to retrofit um, the, the houses, they train the, the long-term unemployed in those areas. Now, those houses, and I did a survey on, on, on one of the estates in Drumchapel, none of them had any insulation at all. Um, you maybe had one household with a bookshelf. Um, you didn't necessarily have any families that were together. You had a lot of social problems, and you had lots of dog breeding and shotgun shots everywhere, drug problems, everything. Walls were paper thin, no internal insulation, no, no insulation on the roof. Yet somehow these buildings were rescued, and they're horrible blocks, but they were rescued and retrofitted, and probably retrofitted in those days with some insulation that's not quite um, meets the code today. And here goes back to my point. You talk about the old stuff. We've got this retrofit thing pushed by AJ and, and Reba, and we've got this existing suburban housing stock. I just want to know if anybody's got any um, comments on how to deal with insulation in respect to our long-term sustainability in that typology because these are not necessarily heritage assets. These are just houses that normal people live in. Uh, do you want me to answer that question? No. I think there's a, there is a, a calculation and a kind of a, a measure that needs to be taken about um, what we keep and what we don't. I am becoming increasingly uncomfortable about uh, destroying stuff that's already been built. And I'm just uncomfortable because this is material. This is actual stuff. This is energy that was used uh, to build this thing. And if we can make it work, if we can improve it, then why not? Um, why do we have, why is it that we have to bin our cars every six years because they don't, you know, conform to the, to the current regulation? I, I f I f I'm sorry, I feel quite strongly about that. This goes on to almost my second point, which maybe um, um, is a wider point for the, the speakers. 
And it goes again back to some heritage stuff as well as a suburban typology. Now, you don't want to go around and just put insulation in the roof. You don't necessarily want to go around and create condensation problems by lighting all the internal walls with some newfangled insulation. You probably want to wrap it up. Well, you need to understand it. You can't put insulation, and we put insulation on the inside of buildings all the time. If you know what you're doing, it doesn't cause damp. And I think this is, this is where the difference between understanding what you're doing and having the science and the, uh, the specialists who know what they're talking about and just doing it yourself, buying it at BOQ and slap B, oh, is it BOQ? BNQ, sorry. Um, and slapping it on the inner, inner walls. I think, no, you don't do that. You, you have to, to understand what you're doing. And then it won't leak. No, you won't have done problems. But there's inherent costs because to insulate inside, you're dealing with airflow throughout and you're, you're doubling up the cost. Sure, there is cost, but don't you think the government should be subsidizing that? Don't you think there should be tax breaks and regulations that, and we've always, the government has always prioritized uh, directions it wants the building industry to take by giving them tax um, cuts. And it's always done that. So why is insulation any uh, different? Is this the solution then? Is, do we just need government to get involved and tell us to retrofit our homes? <laughs> Um, yeah, the short answer yes and it, it, it requires like a kind of almost systemic change to the way we, we do things economically almost and um, yes the government needs to get involved, they need to legislate that's how we're, gonna, we're going to change the problem because um, you know, the insulation problem is, 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 is a really really big problem it's going to cost a hell of a lot of money to to insulate all the homes we don't. When you think, I think something like, what, 40% of the, the UK's carbon footprint comes from the built environment, mm. you know, right? You know, so, and most of that is from stuff that's here already that is not insulated correctly. So it needs to be, it needs to be fixed. So the government, whether they'll do it or not, I don't know, because it, it you know, you are talking about a huge, you know, change. Um, I, was, I was having a conversation with a friend <coughs> A few weeks ago, and we were talking about it, and he said, "He said, oh, well, you know, what what we should do is we should um, instead of paying money for um, um, paying money to energy companies um, for an amount of kilowatt of hours of energy, we should pay kilowatt, we should pay them that amount of money just to keep our homes at like 20 degrees all year round." And then I was like, "What?" And and it, it wouldn't. I took some time to think about it, and I thought, actually, that's not that daft actually because. If that happened, it would, it would be a complete change in the way we think about it. It would, it, would, it would shift the way that we think about energy from consumption to conservation. Because all of a sudden, the energy companies will be forced to think, well, actually, what we should do is insulate everybody's homes because then, actually, our profits will soar because all of a sudden, we're still going to get money. We're going to have to give them anything all of, all of a sudden. So it be, and it be, if you think about it, and it, sort of economically, it becomes a thing... Uh, that, that actually uh, hedge funds and things will invest in because actually there's a there's a you know there's a gold ring at the end of this you know you've got to spend you know millions and millions and millions of pounds um, um, insulating homes once you've done that there is effectively this money for for just not not doing too much so but it, it's going to require a big change 
Yeah, I think the government will implement a, you know, a national retrofit programme. I, I think they have to if they want to get to net zero by 2050, which is the kind of legal stated aim. But if they were going to do it, I, I keep on thinking, like, the urgency, the urgency is such that you should be seeing armies of people kind of working across all of our existing houses, upgrading them. It should be happening now. You should be seeing it. And it's, and it's not. And there's not, I can't really see a reason why it's not happening. I think if you... I think that is a really good idea, like putting the onus on the energy companies to kind of keep a, a sustainable temperature inside the houses. That's really good. I think in Italy at the moment, <clears throat> they're offering something like a 110% rebate on upgrading historic buildings. Um, so you even get the money to pay a good consultant to do, to do the design for you. And not, I mean, we just got a 0% if you just buy insulation, but it doesn't cover it if you're doing a retrofit or it doesn't cover it in a, in a, in a so it's completely kind of pointless because you could, you could hardly ever just putting insulation in. Um, and I think like, it's a really big, it's a really big problem. Like how do we, because you know, our built environment is still Victorian, it's still, I don't know, in London, 50% Victorian, 30% Edwardian. How do we upgrade those houses and how do we do it in a way that people are going to be satisfied with, that you're going to lose internal space? You would expect to be seeing loads and loads of like, tests. You see a few in the pages of Architecture Magazine's quite good one by Architecture for London, but it's their own house and it's kind of, you know, but how do you do it on a, across, the, across the board? You know, how do you do it on a mass scale? And you, I, I don't know. I keep on thinking, you should be seeing it. You should be, it should be visible now. Mm. I guess government will get there 10 or 15 years too late, as they often do with these things. Um, think just as asset managers are working out how they can cash in on it. I think um, the challenge is, is uh, there was a discussion on Twitter a few days ago where a political commentator was talking about why ministers don't get insulation. It's one, it's not sexy. Two, it's, it's not sort of big. In, in a way that they can't open like a wind farm or open a new power station. The, the second thing is that they don't think they should be paying for it because a lot of it will go into private housing. So why aren't the owner of the house paying for it? And, and the third thing was um, a real fear post-Grenfell combined with poor construction skills and quality that the government will be held responsible for mass bodge of insulation um, installation and the government will have to pay for a massive undoing exercise in five or ten years time to take you know you know to deal with bad retrofit you know because the standards will be too low and it'll be there'll be too many cowboys will get involved mm. and then they'll the particularly among private homeowners the government will be blamed and they will never get the upside that was, the, that was the gist of that Twitter discussion. And I think it's a real challenge. How do you get a minister to see insulation as sexy? And I don't know if in other countries have they made insulation sexy such that politicians do want to support it. There will be more
pay those people badly, treat them badly on site, and the schools and colleges we spoke to, uh, they don't teach uh, what it is to work in a built environment and the impact on Sorry, Summer, can you just make sure that mic's on? Push it up. Is it on now? Yeah. yeah. Great. Um, Excellent. Start, start <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very cross. Yeah, I don't know. There, there's like there's a lot of reform that that has to happen from kind of the ground up, and um, at the moment it's it's not starting. And we we only have so much agency within the environment that we're in. But the fact that we've been subsidising new build construction for so long, no one pays VAT on building a new house. You know, I've worked on so many projects where we've demolished buildings because it saved more net budget for the client than it was for them to refurbish a perfectly good building, and it's travesty actually and yet no way does the insulation cost come anywhere close to covering the cost of what it is to refurbish a building like that's just rubbish it's yeah it's a gesture it's a pointless gesture i'm going to, I'm going to come in again and i'm hoping other people will will join in as well because uh, you made a really good point there i think i think a lot of um local politics not just ministers are shit scared of dealing with insulation and are, are totally sitting on the fence. But they tend to be shit scared about anything, really, um, because they just want their people's votes. Um, but it goes back to what um, Coonley was saying, is that, you know, he would depend, as, 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 as a young contractor, um, for the architect to do the specifications and have the knowledge about the insulation. And we've got um, a few experts on, on, on the speaker panel tonight, and probably a few... Um, in the audience as well, and I think for in a, in, a, in a bizarre way, we're kind of saying architects do have a responsibility and a potential for action, real action, on really pushing this insulation agenda in the right way. With some of the points that you're making, Summer, on that. Yeah, I think we absolutely have a responsibility. I, I think we've felt for a long time like it was other people's. You know, look, we have a responsibility for the the way we build and also the people we build with and the the traces we leave of those buildings. And I think the idea of what it is to be an architect has to change, I think. The, the role that we have in society has to change. Mostly, we're pretty redundant, <laughs> you know, unless we change the way we engage with the world as well. Um, and the skills we have can be applied in loads of other ways. I think it's thinking about them interestingly and... Um, positively is, is what could make make our roles better. I completely agree with that. I think more than a responsibility, we have a duty as architects to decide that building regulations no longer matter and it's our responsibility to choose what targets above building regulations that we're designing to now. I don't think it's really stretching for all architectural practices to decide that they're going to meet, whether it's the LETI or RIBA. We know the targets already. I mean, in, um, in my entire career, I've never gone onto site and any contractor has challenged the U-value of the walls I've built or the, or the roofs or the floors. It just hasn't happened. So therefore, we are responsible from the outset to design to what it is we expect to see. I think we're sitting here waiting for government is we have to take the bottom-up approach and joining groups like ACAN or Letty or Architects Declare bring such um, a great opportunity to be able to um, learn from each other and also allow ourselves grace because this, Tim, you highlighted it, this complexity and I think this moral dilemma that we as architects now have because 
you're thinking about the client's budget and you're thinking about space and you're thinking about embodied carbon when you're just trying to choose insulation. Um, and it's a lot and that's just one piece. Um, so this holistic approach is, is critical, but I, I do think that we definitely have more than a responsibility and we have a duty. It's, it, it's very much has to be inherent. And this is why I think a lot of us chose to become architects because you know, we, we're optimists, we genuinely believe the good in society and we want to create better places for people. And fundamentally, if we're thinking about fuel poverty, if we're thinking about health and well-being, and the role of architecture and the architect has definitely changed. It, it's not changing. It's not something we have to consider will change in the future. I think right now we're, we're here already. The world has moved on. We're all activists in one um, capacity or another. And architecture is such, a, is a, such a strong platform to be able to really practice that activism. I'm, I, can I just respond? I, I, I think it's really... I think at this moment, as we're trying to create zero carbon buildings, if they exist, <coughs> um, we have to kind of re rethink the whole way that we approach practice and the whole way we design and the way that we judge buildings. Like, you know, we, you know I think you have to re recalibrate all of the things that we've been, you know, used to, the, 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 met the metrics that we've been judging buildings on, how they look, you know, Lots of things that we instinctively, as architects who've grown up in this period, will look at and, and um, judge, you know, large amounts of glazing, um, kind of simplicity of detailing, like uh, structural gymnastics. All of those things are just, have just got, you know, have, have just got to go. And all of the things that um, meeting, a, like achieving a, a zero carbon building, form factor, um, solar gain. So you're, you're going to start seeing, like, buildings with really what we would think is quite small openings and they have different openings on different elevations because they've got to respond to the environment and they won't be faceted you know they'll have very simple um quite kind of squat and square forms because they're going to have to and so we i think we have to start without over egging it it's like a whole reset of how we design we're going to have to start working with structural engineers and mechanical engineers so much earlier in the process. Before you even, you know, you're not going to be able to do, here's my sketch, here's make it so. Um, it has to start earlier because if you're going to, so much carbon is in the, in the structure, in the, the, the structural grid that you choose or the, uh, and in the, the way that you, um, not heat or cool, but how you keep it comfortable inside. So it's like everything has to kind of shift. Um, which is kind of scary, but also kind of exciting, I guess. I'm just going to start with the back of that question. Which are our ABA stage? Would you start with them? If you're not starting at feasibility, no, where would you start? Like in your process of design? Zero, stay zero. Okay. So what would that include? Would you start with maths? And no, you would start with educating your clients. You would start with, with, I think this works, but you would start by looking at the project and talking to your clients and discussing your options and what you can do and again, although the talk talks about insulation, we are actually talking about a much wider subject in a roundabout fashion. And I come back to the, to the, to the material we use and the recyclability of the material we use, and that includes the insulation that we're putting in. 
And, and I think that's a conversation you start right at the very beginning. Yes, it is. On. Um, yeah, I think um, Tara makes some really good points there. And, but I do think it has to be backed up by legislation. That, you know, architects, you can't do it on your own because eventually you come up against the, the, you know, the big question. And the big question is always the, is, is the finances, the commerce of it. And the big question is, well, you, know, you tell the client, you explain to the client, and they say, well, why should I do it that way? Because I can do it this way and it's cheaper. Yes, but it's better for you. But it's better, yeah, but it's still cheaper. So... If it becomes a law, if it becomes a necessity for them to do it, then, of course, they will do it. So it has to be backed up by legislation. That's the only way that we're going to get where we need to go. I think in terms of retrofitting 27 million homes which don't have enough insulation, um, architects, you know, I know that you, as architects, know your stuff, but I don't think architects should be complacent about their role in that to be honest um if you know at some point these homes will have to be retrofitted and there are plenty of surveyors that can stick in plastic into homes all around the country so i guess it's a challenge for architects to think about what should retrofitting all of these homes look like and what is their role in it um if they believe they are the the best people to do it properly yeah, sorry, it was um, more, I guess, uh, and I think Tanvir kind of made the point, um, it's the importance of the client. Um, I've kind of just come off a project where I have been the client um, and doing things like writing a brief um, for your design team. That's actually where it starts. Um, so, you know, I'm not throwing any shade on anything like architects, you know, declare and any of those movements. I think they're fantastic in terms of sharing, you know, expertise and probably also you know sharing frustrations as well but unless you're bringing the client with you and also the customer as well the private sector in particular is incredibly risk averse everything that we're specifying is based on what has sold before if you cannot demonstrate that what we're going to be building can be sold it will not get put in so it's really about joining those dots between the architect and I think you know um, you made a really nice point earlier about you know some of the projects that you're doing, they might seem small, but, you know, they're the evidence case. And the more you can start doing that and actually showing this will sell, your customers will want it, that's going to push the clients to change as well. And by all means, do the scare tactics as well. If you don't do this, you won't sell it. That's also working. Um, but, yeah, I just think please, please don't neglect that, that point um, because, trust me, the sector uh, really needs it. I, I want to follow up on that. We were working uh, recently recently working with a client who worked with in the past. He hasn't done too many developments, young developer. And it's been great to have those kind of conversations with him because he's beginning to think, because of new planning policies, the new kind of awareness on it, that having the discussion with architects, with development manager, with um, energy consultant, right at the outset on defining the brief is where it's at. I totally agree with that. just going to add to that as well. I think every time, it's not in our culture to share information very much. <laughs> Architects, we like to hold our details and our uh, costings very close to ourselves. Um, but I think if there was more of a culture of sharing data around these things, it's really ex 
the data is really difficult. It's really expensive to calculate what the impact of what you're doing is. And we don't do it. We're not skilled in it. And lots of people don't bother doing it because it's really boring. Um, and you have to have expensive software licenses. But if you're in a position where you have that, you have those tools, you have those privileges, you have, uh, I don't know, BIM software, which quantifies your materials and quantifies the embodied carbon of what you've done. And you've got a wall built up. And you built this thing. And everyone's like, oh, that's really beautiful. Well done. Tell everyone what it, what it did. <laughs> then people can choose and we will understand. But that information is just not available and it's really expensive to get it. And, and until that starts to shift, yeah, there won't be the tools that we all have and we all need um, to start to make a case, which, an economic case, I completely agree. It is on economic grounds at the moment that we have to fight this, but, but we are not equipped <laughs> because there isn't the stuff that we need to do it. I'm going to come in just slightly again, sorry, I'm probably boring everyone, but... Tim made a good point earlier on, on the back of that summer about that kind of absolute simplicity of the cork build-up, you know? You can imagine a few architects here thinking, yeah, that's great, that's simple, I love that. But also even with what's out there, I mean, we, we had a situation where really, really basically we just got, the, 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 got focused on filling a cavity completely just with the right kind of non-combustible the right kind of insulation, got the thickness that worked, made sure it had the kind of all, all the kind of regs, and we made sure we talked with the insurance company, the client, or the building warranty company, the client, the fire consultant, and so on, and we were able to take out things that we were being sold, or we normally are as architects, being sold in product manuals from Kingspan and onwards, where you've got to buy a cavity closer, you've got to buy this, you've got to buy that, and then you build it all up. With managed to get rid of all that just in the same way you're talking to him about that simple detail you can get rid of all that stuff that's been sold to us which is just a waste of time and money can i just say something which made related but different um when we were chatting before i came in and i was speaking to summer and she said oh you do something really specialized you really you you your practice is really good at what they do they are sort of you know the gold standard but you're really expensive and I said, sure, it takes a lot of time to do, to deliver this sort of quality. And I think sustainability and detailing insulation and knowing your BIM and advising on the right material doesn't come cheap. And we have a culture amongst architects of sort of nosedive to the bottom, 1% fees, you know, 1.5% fees. And we're so desperate to get this job because we want to build, we want our name out, um, that we just, we can't, we have to deliver the quality and we have to charge for being able to deliver that quality. And I think sustainability and insulation is, is going to be, is important, but it, it is time consuming if it's going to be done well. And we have to factor that into our fees. We have to factor specialists because we need them. We need someone to tell us whether sheep wool is better than wood chip or whether, you know, and if I don't have money in my, uh, in my project to be able to hire someone, then I'm just going to rely on Kingspan to give me the calculations. And I think therein lies the difference. When I restore a building, I know exactly where the brick is coming from. I know how it's built. I know how it's behaved. I have a specialist cleaner. I have, and I s will spend on those kind of consultants to give me the 
expert knowledge and therefore my fees are expensive you know can i just say in my defense i'm expensive as well but um, (laughs) but also very good value but also like the way we work out our fees is kind of broken as well um if we're doing it on a percentage of construction cost then we're tying ourselves to at the what is at the moment kind of um you know misuse or, or kind of just use of resources not to saving resources so in like the whole which i know i know we're not obliged to use the fee scale but i don't know many architects who don't or any many consultants but it's it's maybe the, it's what it is the wrong way to be calculating our fees we need to think about how we value ourselves differently and how we give value differently because we're just tied to the wrong thing like we're tied to the wrong outcome and, and delivering that kind of detail and delivering that level of detail which we would need when we talk about insulation and all the ramification of, of insulating, uh, and in my case, old buildings, you, you really need to be very careful. I think, I think that's really interesting, and I think, but I think there's another problem, and, and probably even bigger problem, and it is, it's the skill gap between the architect and the, the, and, and the subcontractors, or the contractors, or the main contractors on site. The problem is, the more you insulate, and the more you start aiming for these targets, the more important it is that you do it correctly and that it's done in the, in the right way. Um, you know, there are stories, you know, I've, I've been on sites and I've been on hundreds, and, you know, you see people shoving insulation in and there's gaps and everything else. That, that can't happen anymore. So the amount of training, and there's a, there's a big, to be fair to, to to, to contractors, there's a big skills gap. You know, we don't get trained for seven years to, you know, to do what we do. And so we might not be able to read the drawing or understand what it's, it's said to us. So, but then, the prob- there's, then there's another problem. The other problem is then, well, that means more time for architects, that means more fees. Clients are always reluctant to keep, you know, even to keep architects on as project architects, which is ridiculous in my point, in my view. Um, so there needs to be that's a huge problem and how you actually disseminate the information in a right way and, and, and the skills and get people to do what they're meant to be doing on site. Otherwise it's all pointless because you can sit in your, your practice and design whatever you want but if you know, guys like me don't do it right, it's pointless. Um, I'm a structural engineer and we've been working on a few projects the last few months, really, really nice projects for local authorities or kind of community land trusts or just developers <clears throat> sorry, who don't have such high overheads, I guess, or profit margins. And we have just found it to be such a different way to work on a project because the client or you know the people who are going to be selling these properties have more money to spend because I don't think they're out to make as much money as other big private developers. And I think the more local authorities can take back the kind of power of what they're developing, the more smaller developers that can come out of industry who are kind of posting these smaller profit margins, we are going to have more freedom to kind of specify better materials, um, go the more expensive route because it's going to create better quality homes, you know, the lower fuel charges that we're talking about. And I just think everybody should go out on their own and you should have your own development company maybe. (laughs) I, I do, but um, but you're absolutely right. 
But one of the one of the, the, the one, you hit a really interesting point, and it's a point that you know I've been talking to lots of people about the mo uh, at the moment, and it is that you know uh, when you look at house building in this country, it, it's controlled by like six or seven companies, right? We all know who they are, um, and that needs to be broken. We need to break that cycle somehow for exactly the reasons you've just you've just talked about. And one of the ways that we can do that is again through legislation, but it is you know about making certain types of land um, uh, available to SME developers. So whether that is um, government land um, and making sure that you know a load of these companies, all they do is they they, they buy. So they 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 land bank as we all probably know, but they they just buy land. They're building on land that they bought 20 years ago. So the economics of that are very very different to somebody who is um, trying to build, like us, you know, trying to buy a plot of land and, and, build, and build houses. But if land can be, be split down into smaller plots, and also if we can encourage people to self-build, that's another great way to, that, exactly what you've said, that's what will happen. Build, when people self-build, typically they are much better insulated, much better houses in, in, in general. And so what can the government do to break the stranglehold of these six big companies Make SME developers um, uh, give them better access to land and, 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 and to building homes, and also simultaneously encourage self build. If we can do those things. We'll so I think we've got one project that's a co housing development, but a lot of the, a lot of the people who are going to live there are already on board. So you've got them involved in the conversation from the very, very start. It's their money. You know, they are investing in this they want to live there for their whole lives or they'll live there for a few years maybe sell up but they are so willing to spend the money and it you know there is going to be a profit margin for the developer there well they're kind they're not a, anyway for the builder there has to be a profit margin but having the end user there at the very very start it's just a completely different experience and there's none of this like there's a little bit of kind of back and forth obviously over economics but if you can sit with them and show them why it's a better you know, it is a better fit. Like, we can have wider walls. It's easier when it's new build, obviously. We can have wider walls. You can fit the insulation in. We can have bigger structural zones. And the insulation question is very similar to the embodied carbon of the structure, the embodied carbon of anything. But especially with the structure, it comes to zones. You know, how deep are the floors going to be? Can we put a column there? We need your wall to be 300 mil thick rather than whatever it was going to be. And I think just having those people involved at the start is just... It's completely different, and it's obviously in a dream world we'd be doing everything like that now, but I think the more that we can push towards projects like that, and I think that's how we do push. We do need government help from the top. Like, in Ireland, they've been... You can get a grant to retrofit your home in Ireland, and I actually just looked at the table there to see what the amounts were, but it's so... It's been happening for, like, maybe 10, 15 years. You can go on the website. There's different levels of grant for if you're just going to insulate the rafters in your roof or you know, your external walls. They've got a list of approved contractors. You just find one, they come visit their house, you tell them all the bits you want them to do, and you get the grant. And that's just been happening for so long, and it's so normal and done in Ireland that everybody will insulate their homes. And yeah, they might do it wrong, but I guess you can't be like frightened of that stuff. It just has to happen. And so many countries in Europe are doing it. Again, I don't know how we lobby politicians, but it can happen, it's super easy, I think.
remember my dad actually fitting his own loft insulation and getting the grant, so he actually made money uh, by fitting it himself. But those were quite small scale. But I remember that happening in the 80s when people went from no loft insulation to at least the depth of the rafter. Now they probably need more. But um, that, I think that actually worked quite well because it didn't prescribe what you had to use, I think. Um, I think one of the ch having worked in an organization that had to deal with a lot of mass house builders, I think one of the challenges is, is how do we, is it only legislation that's going to force them? Because broadly, they only act if their rivals do the same thing. Um, and they'd like a level playing field. But I wonder whether, because of current high energy prices, whether there will be some kind of consumer pressure now on the persimmons of this world as to whether anyone will ask them any questions at the sales point of sale about the cost of, you know, how much is it going to cost to heat this home? Um, because at the moment, they don't get very much information, I think, do they, that's really in a kind of consumer-friendly way. I wonder whether that needs to be much more overt to say this home will cost you £1,600 a year to heat. And people will go, ooh, that's rather a lot. Whether you actually have to force them to put a figure on, you know, on the outside of the... Because uh, in some other sectors that's happened. If you think of... I remember when cars used to be advertised in the 80s, they were endlessly competing on how, how little fuel they used at 56 miles an hour. And it became a massive slogan for every car company. And then the same when... Um, they started crashing cars in doing testing. Nobody wanted to be a one-star, you know, company. And I think, I think that happened to British Leyland when they literally withdrew the Mini Metro because it scored one star or no stars. Suddenly it was off the market. But I suppose one of the challenges in the UK is that the large house builders don't always build behind need. So they can always sell what they've got. So I suppose is there really any market pressure? there but it would be interesting to see whether the current energy crisis is leading to that yeah i didn't know if we'd be able to show slides but i've got one and i'll just describe it um i brought one along which is of a new build house and it's uh, a kind of wall where they've um they've taken down the plasterboard <clears throat> and there's a lonely scrap of uh, mineral wall insulation which was at the exact point where the they knew that the building inspector would look into the wall to check that there would be insulation, and then just a void of nothingness around it. Um, so they don't, they don't care, and they'll, you know. And but it's also about, and it's also, it's, it's about, it's about. I mean, it, we've kind of gone beyond inspection and kind of people actually uh, enforcing this stuff. But maybe if it's done through performance, then it's a maybe. Um, easier thing to... I, I, I just want to bring up on the, the, the point that the lady made earlier about the local authorities um, as a kind of client base, whether it's local authorities or um, affordable housing providers. They, they have to do things properly because they're actually... In, in them, inherently, they are trying to have tenants who don't have big heating bills. So they do it properly. And I think if there is a disconnect, it's where um, affordable housing providers and local authorities are getting the funds. But they also care about doing it properly, I think, and that's a big difference. I don't know how you change the culture, but yeah. I don't have the figures, but does anybody know how much of the new development is built by developers? I mean, the, the buildings that go up in England. Oh. What percentage Gosh, is yes. developer and how, what percentage is designed by architects? Yeah, 
80% of statistics 80. are made up on the yeah. spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 but I, I was going to say 80. I, and it, it's, probably, it's probably about that. Um, it, it's huge. Um, and we need to break the stranglehold. And, you know, they don't, they don't have these, like the gentleman was saying, you know, you're talking about carrot and stick, but there is no real stick because they control the market. And it's like, if you want a house, that's what it looks like. That's where it is. Either buy it or don't, you know, and that's kind of how the market works at the moment. So, so uh, that needs to change. And the, the thing with local authorities, I think, how do we get them to change from saying, is, well, more architects working for local authorities and housing associations again. And there's a few um, housing associations that have noticed are hiring architects as, as head of development and things. I think that's that's fantastic, um, and and that will make a big that will make a big change. Guys, we've really talked about um, insulation and homes, but should we be talking about insulation and office buildings as well? There are so many glass buildings still being erected in this city that still need heating and cooling. Is, you know, should we be stuffing insulation in them, or is it just a lesser kind of problem? Well, for a start, they should turn the lights off at night. Have you ever been into the city? It's, uh, uh, yes, I think there's a total disconnect uh, uh, between office buildings and energy consumption because they all come from this tradition of the passive house. Um, and so every air is recycled. Now after COVID, um, the recycling is increased. So you just increase the amount of energy that's used. And we really need to think um, about our office buildings differently. I completely agree. And many of the old the buildings that were built in the 90s and 80s, I think the mastic's about to expire. So I think they will all come to be sort of all their glass, these wonderful big glass facades will come down and be remastic because mastic has a 20-year guarantee on it. So they're a big problem. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe we should be thinking about putting something other than glass in their place. I mean, I'm, not, not, I, I'm definitely not an economist, but I, I kind of thought there's a lot of resistance to getting homeowners, putting the obligation on homeowners to upgrade their homes. But you, we kind of need to get the whole industry started. It needs to upscale so quickly. And one way you could do is kind of put the obligation onto commercial landlords. I know commercial landlords would cry uh, you know, in pain, but, you know, that would be less politically um, problematic. And, you do, yeah, you know, we're just so far away from getting started on this problem. There's just not enough people. So if you if you put the obligation on commercial um, property owners to upgrade their buildings, that could be a good way of starting it, which is less politically toxic than putting the obligation onto homeowners. But, yeah. Well, I like that idea a lot, actually, because as a private rentee, I'm not really sure what my landlord would get from upgrading my flat. But maybe try and charge me more, but it, it, he's charging me so much. I don't really know if he could, so... <laughs> Oh, he could. Yeah. <laughs> but I, th I think that's a good idea, actually. And kind of protecting renters as well. Yeah, rather than kind of giving it away to homeowners. Anyone? Can I ask a question for, for Summer, probably more than anyone? Um, recently, I found and I've heard from a few people that there's been a lot of shortage on mineral wool insulation. Um, maybe for the audience, maybe for myself as well, how, how do you get over the kind of monopolizing of the products? You know, it's rock wool or dry therm, mineral wool. 
various other mineral wool kind of things. But, you know, I remember um, an old centre down in the south uh, bankside um, construction materials resource or something. And they used to have all sorts of different products. Um, we talked about cork earlier. Um, I remember um, cardboard being talked about before. Do you see any products on the horizon, any new new forms, new new ways of getting breaking the monopoly of the big companies? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess the picture's changed a bit now with the fuel crisis and the war um, and ways which I hope will change. Um, we did a lot of visits last year to speak to different manufacturers and contractors in Yorkshire and the northeast, and one of the housing developers we met at the time who builds prefab housing in Leeds said that the cheapest insulation that they could buy, literally the cheapest was wood fibre but not the wood fibre that you buy in bats or the rigid one which is really fancy but the one that you buy in bags and pulp and blow at high pressure into cavities and they were like we don't even have to make the case for sustainability, it's fantastic it's really cheap, so that's really great but unfortunately for us broadly uh, the price of wood fibre insulation has doubled since the fuel crisis started a few weeks ago and all of the wood fibre consultants, we, uh, suppliers we've spoken to won't honour their original prices from the beginning of the year. So that's not a great avenue right now. Um, but there's also insulation made of like newspaper and, um, you know, they call it cellulose, but they mean newspaper, which is, has the same way of being installed. You know, you pulp it and you blow it in at high pressure into cavities and eventually it slumps in one day and then you have to take it out and replace it. But... There's a culture of maintenance, which we've been talked about, that is also important. Um, I guess we're in a position where we, we don't work with Rockwell, <laughs> broadly. You know, we're uh, privileged in that we are uh, binary. <laughs> um, so we look for other options, and we try and find the ones which are less expensive for our clients. And sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't. Um, and it, the real test to us will be when we work with a developer, which is something we're trying to do, to see how do you actually make these things effective um, and affordable at scale, and it's really, really difficult. Um, but yeah, there definitely are there are things out there. But once you start interrogating them, it all unspools. <laughs> you know, like newspaper insulation, for example, the cellulose insulation that we get in the UK, uh, they use it quite a lot. House builders in Wales use it, and unfortunately for us, all the newspapers that we use on the tube in London um, are taken away by a con contractor we aren't allowed to name uh, and burned for biomass. So all the newspaper insulation that we use in the UK is imported um, from Europe where they keep their newspapers and turn them into recycled paper. Um, so there's so many kind of uh, problematic kind of cultural relationships at play, like industry relationships that um, need unpicking. But the more we ask to use these things, the more they will be supplied here and become low cost. Is there anything else anyone else wants to know? got a great panel here, they know lots of stuff. Yeah, go on. Thank you. Um, it sounds to me a little bit like, for some reason, we need to slow down. So we, need, we know that a tonne of carbon emitted today is much worse than a carbon, tonne of carbon emitted in a year's time. So if we're going to slow down, if we're going to do the research, if we're going to persuade the clients, if we're going to find the funding, all of these things, we need some more frictional stakeholders. So maybe we need to list far more buildings on environmental as well as heritage terms, or maybe we need to start consulting all the newts and badgers more carefully during planning. 
you know, should the whole industry slow down, what's the path to that? And, you know, is it a good idea now? Or should we just hurry up and whisk the mistakes along the way? Aiming that at me or <laughs> no anyone? I don't, I, anyone I, I don't really. the Newton Badger uh, <laughs> representative here. Um, I think you can do both. I think you can. We can use the stuff that we know and understand, and we have tested and tried for for many years. I think we need to be careful about just rushing with new, the madness of actually insulating everything. So the answer is. Well, neither, both, actually. I don't know. I'd maybe take a different view then, just because it's the uh, <laughs> accreditors. But I think we just have to get like we just have to do it really. Like we just have to really put all our energy into doing it. I mean, if you see what's happening, for instance, like in the Netherlands, <clears throat> their their approach, which I think you probably wouldn't like, but you see all these. There's companies where you can pay them. They come. Um, it's a bit like the green, the, the, one, of the, one of the failed green deals that we had here. You offset, they basically they work out what you would have paid in your um, fuel bills over 20 years. And then they give you like a payment plan that reflects that. And then they come and insulate your home. And they just come and like wrap it in some, you know, on the outside. Quite often there'll be like a pair, you know, like a semi-detached pair. And I, I think the attitude there is like, we don't care. Um, we have to do it. And I think, I, whilst respecting the viewpoint, I just think that it's, a, it's too slow here. And I think a lot of the problems, you, inevitably, you have to get your hands dirty to solve the problems. And I think we just have to crack on with it and start. Like, how do we, how do we retrofit a Victorian terrace? How do we retrofit Beckentry Estate? How do we, we... I don't think we've really even tried to answer the question yet. And I think we just need to start doing it, like, um, straight away. <laughs> I'll come, I'll come back on that. So that, that model that you were talking about, energy sprung, um, I, I think that there's a difference. And when we think perhaps of uh, Dutch architecture, we're thinking of something very different to where energy sprung. There's actually swathes and swathes of pretty standard. And when you say, what's heritage? What's an old building? What's 50s, 60s, 70s? Which are actually, yeah, 50s buildings are, what, 70 years old now? And, and I think that that's where we get to it, is actually that kind of typology classification. So we do something like Energy Sprung, which we're starting to do in the UK. Lots of housing associations are starting to do that heat as a service model. But we're doing, we're just, I think we're trying to apply one solution to an incredible diversity of housing stock when actually we should be talking about typologies and practical applications and start coming up with, and I, I think in PAS 2035, which is the, the kind of standard for how you do coordinated retrofit, there isn't really a clear role as, as to what profession are we talking about. And I think the role for, for architects, and I'm, I'm not an architect myself, an architectural technologist, I think the role for architects actually is in getting to design those typologies and then tweaking them in en masse or, you know, for higher-end clients and, and, you know, really what are heritage buildings, they require a, an architect and those a bit more bog-standard buildings, here's your kind of standard application. That's my solution. <laughs> yes, I think you're right. That's why I said you have to do both of them. You can wrap every Barclay home up in cling film as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, I, I think and I, I would be really terrified if you wrapped up Hampton Court in cling film. And I think there, there, therein lies the two differences. And you have to do both.
I think you're right as well because um, you know architects are going to have a limited role if we're going to retrofit all these homes. There are only 40,000 architects. There are more than 20 million homes that need work. So uh, you know, and we need it done ASAP. So architects can't work on every single thing. Working out kind of different typologies and ways of doing it compared to geography or you know building or you know client and price, I think might be their role. Thank you. Um, just a quick follow-up on that, actually. Um, maybe a bit to clarify as well, because I'm actually an energy consultant, let's say. So, uh, you know, I can say a word or two on that, hopefully. Um, carbon today is the same as carbon tomorrow, actually. It's the total amount of carbon at the end of the day that will dictate what is happening 100 years down the line. We may delay it. So if we, if we emit it later, we delay the consequence of it a little bit, but at the end result will be the same. Although, in response to your question, what is critical is this. There are things that we can do today and we should do urgently, and maybe that's coming back to the binary, kind of we need to do a bit of both. There are things that we should do today immediately with dealing with our existing building stock because those are emitting a lot of carbon, burning natural gas, that will not be possible to deal with any other point. So if we start with those and address those as urgently as possible, that will be the biggest impact. But there's also an element of delay which is taking advantage of the decarbonizing of things, like the electricity grid, like the manufacturing processes and so on, which is already happening. For those things, yes, we need to slow down possibly. We need to, we need to sort of look at things, for the right, like wait for the right time for that new development to take hold with the whole life carbon perspective in place. So certain things we need to accelerate a lot, certain others we need to slow down for it to be all together, add up to a good solution for everyone and you know, the climate and the world in general. Right? You got the wrong people on the uh, panel, Will. <laughs> Thanks. I think one of the underlying themes that certainly was apparent to me here, and there were a number of them, was just this idea of misaligned incentives. Is that we're all pulling in different directions, right? The, developers, local authorities, end users. And I think where we've all seen success has been where people are pulling in the same direction. And I think one of our challenges will be to get people pulling in that direction in everything we do. And quickly, just to say on behalf of Four Space and uh, Rob, thank you guys for contributing to the night's talk and thank you for everybody for coming. Um, the next one is going to be on the 26th of April, I think, I'm right in saying, and is going to be diverse by design, which is a, a not diverse, diverse by design, um, which is a second of another trilogy we've got going, which started off with death by design and we've got decency by design and the middle one is diverse by design so that's on the 26th of april so hope to see you all back for that one thank you again for all coming thanks for listening 
For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.